I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was just the most horrific news. Today I am interviewing all-round legend and broadcasting superwoman. One of the most recognizable broadcasters in the country. Bringing you some of the sport as it continues. Gabby Logan! what you put in you get out you can't fake it where do you think you got that tenacity and determination my brother had died no warning signs it was devastating and still to this day has the ripple effects families change forever when things like that happen I, I can't imagine what that would have been like I was not coping very well you can't just keep running away from grief getting to the top's one thing staying at the top is a different journey. There are a lot of people who want my job and I want to keep doing my job. And if you were talking to the you who was just starting out, what advice would you give her? I think... What's up guys and welcome back to Working Hard, Hardly Working. Today I am so excited to be interviewing kind of all-round legend and broadcasting superwoman really, Gabby Logan. I have been incredibly, incredibly excited for this episode and having just recorded it, it does not disappoint. Starting out as a rhythmic gymnastic who represented Wales and Great Britain, her career took a turn when she moved into the world of sports broadcasting. And for the last 25 years, she's been one of the most well-known faces on our screens. Whether it's the Olympics or the Euros, you can guarantee she'll be making an appearance. Getting to speak to incredible women like Gabby is such an honour for me. And it's only possible because of everyone who likes, subscribes and reviews the podcast. So thank you. And please keep subscribing so we can keep having brilliant conversations just like this one and get inspired and all go about our day to day making big moves which is the aim of the game hi thank you so much for joining me today thanks for having me i'm very excited to have you here i would love to start at the very beginning i'd love to hear a little bit about your kind of early life and your childhood firstly i know that your dad was a football player and eventually a manager mm-hmm. i'd love to hear the kind of impact that had on you whether you looked up to him, looked up to his career, looked up to that kind of area as something that you always wanted to be involved in? Well, I definitely didn't look up to him in terms of wanting to work in his field. Right. I looked up to him as somebody who was incredibly hardworking mm-hmm. and had had to leave home at 15, move countries, move from Cardiff to Leeds to pursue his dream and his passion and his talent. And I, I knew the sacrifices that involved and, you know, how much he had kind of, uh, you know, really labored and toiled to get to where Mm. he was. But I didn't see working in football as a possibility even. It was more about his attributes. Um, But equally on the other side, I, you know, my mom was also very hardworking, very tenacious, very entrepreneurial. So I had, you know, two parents who, you know, were, were grafters, I think. But my dad's sporting life did influence me in the sense of sport became kind of something that our family did. Right. You know? So my sister and I were gymnasts, my brothers were footballers. Um, we were all training hard all the time, competing, doing loads of sports. So it would be disingenuous to say that sport wasn't an influence, but 
working in football, that was never even mm. on my radar, you know. And do you think that was because of women not necessarily being as high profile in, in yeah, football Yeah, there was in no, there were no women footballers. We mm. didn't have professional game for women. There were no women talking about football on television. But um, it was banned for a while. Well, it was banned for 50 years, <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't banned when I was a child. It, mm. The ban had been lifted by then. But there was still no football in school for girls. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, you just didn't see girls playing football. I was kind of aware of it into my later teens that there were women playing football. And when we lived in Canada, when I was uh, a child, we saw women playing football because in North America it had kind of grown at the same rate for men. So it started pretty much at the same time. I knew girls played it in corners of the world. People kept going about Norway. You know, Norway's had this tradition of, of playing football, but um, not in Leeds in 1986. <laughs> yeah, because I remember, I, I think as well, with my childhood, having the ban, I mean, I obviously wouldn't have even known about it, but the kind of knock-on effect of how something is seen generally in society and how something's looked at mm. and kind of women playing football, all of this. I remember my, um, we'd been late to sign up to like extracurriculars and I remember my dad signing me up for a football one and I had a tantrum and I was like, everyone's <laughs> going to think I'm so uncool. And I was like, I, I have this like memory of that. And I look back now and I'm like, God, it would have been so cool to yeah. play football. You'd have been way ahead of the curve. I know, I know, exactly. <laughs> I could have, you know, that could have been my thing. I remember looking at it and I think it's, you know, how something looks to us as children mm. is so important. Mm. And that's why, you know, with Having women in football models. now. Exactly. It's it's very much kind of how we see the world is how we see ourselves in that way. And I can't imagine what the difference also like would have been like. If you can't see it, you can't be it. I think it's, right. you know, absolutely, uh, you know, vital in this area, isn't it? Because mm. young girls, as you say, you know, were, were even when you were young, you know, and let alone when I was young, would not have seen people like Ella Toon or Jill Scott or, you know, Farrah Williams or Alex Scott, all these these women who've been incredible for the Lionesses, they just didn't know they existed. They didn't see Wembley full for a women's football match. And when you see a full Wembley watching a women's football match, you know it's important. Mm. It kind of sends you messages, doesn't it? Even if you don't like football, you realise, well, this is a big deal. So, yeah, there was no big deal around women's football. In fact, women's sport generally was very under the radar, mm -hmm. not covered to the extent anywhere near it is now. And so you'd kind of pursued gymnastics at that age. Did you see that as something that you were going to do full time? No, because again, it wasn't a professional sport. Mm -hmm. you know, we didn't have the National Lottery then, which funds a lot of Olympic sports now. So that's an Olympic sport. And so you, you do it for its own ends. You do it because you enjoy the training, you enjoy competing, you enjoy the discipline. It gives you something, you know, that you can't, almost untangible that you that you love. But it was never going to be a career as such, which my dad kind of couldn't get his head around as somebody who had sacrificed so much for a professional sport. Right. And for him, football was a way out of the council estate he lived on in Cardiff. And it was a, a way to a better life. And he couldn't understand why I was, you know, doing well at school, but I was kind of giving up all this time to do a sport which was going to come to nothing in his mind. Mm. And actually, even though I never earned any money out of gymnastics, it gave me incredible attributes and really great personal skills, you know, away from the actual sport, as well as, you know, giving me wonderful experiences and meeting brilliant people. So it's not something I would regret. Mm, and sport as a whole, I mean, anything that you do to that intensity, I actually did gymnastics competitively and I remember the way it has to take precedence in the way that actually your body will remember if it doesn't and you're kind of constantly humbled yeah. again and again when you're yeah. like, oh, I really thought I could come back from this holiday having like, yeah. you know, actually really not done nearly enough yeah. on it. You can't fake it. Like you really can't fake the effort putting it in yeah. like that 10,000 hours thing that really having to it's go. Intense. Do you think that at the beginning that gymnastics as well had that type of impact on you in terms of giving you that kind of 
high achieving mindset or high high training. I think what it taught me was that what you put in, you get out. Mm. And like you just said then, you can't fake it. You know, you can't just kind of rock up to a gymnastics competition. It's kind of thinking that you've done, imagining the work, you mm. know. It has to be done. And I think that's what it kind of, it bled into my school life, you know. And I, I put the work in there as well and got the rewards there. And I could see that there was a happy marriage with effort and outcome. And so it taught me to multitask. It taught me timekeeping. It taught me kind of about discipline. And it taught me about how to deal with people in terms of like, you know, when your relationship with a coach, you know, and being able to take critique, being able to take um, criticism and being able to put that into action then, you know, I think all those things build up resilience and they build up a robustness and determinedness to kind of do something and, and to challenge as well sometimes in those situations mm. away from school because your relationship with your teachers is very different to your relationship with a coach and mm. sport. So it doesn't matter what the sport is per se, it's that environment, I think. And also understanding competition, understanding your body as a young girl is really important as mm. well because the pressures, and I, I didn't grow up with social media. And so I feel kind of blessed in a way that that element wasn't there. But there is a very strong kind of feeling about your body when you're wearing a leotard all the time as a teenager. You know, I started my first period <laughs> and the next day had British championships, you right. know. So and putting a leotard on the day after you started your first period as a 13-year-old was quite a, a moment, I'll never yeah. forget. And feeling like you had to somehow kind of, you know, keep your body in a prepubescent state almost because you're wearing a leotard, but trying not to have an eating disorder, you know, all those things that kind of you're wrestling with. So eventually I kind of had a, a healthy relationship, you know, with my body and understanding what it could do, you know, and how your body is more than just something that is an aesthetic thing, you know. So, yeah, there's a, I think I look back and realise those lessons now. I didn't necessarily at the time as a 14-year-old process all of that, I mm. think, you know. You, it's with hindsight, isn't it, and time. And having my own kids and watching their relationship with sport as well, I think you realise the values. In that, with your own kids, have you encouraged them to be doing sports to a competitive level? Not so much the competitive level, although they both have. Mm. It's more about the things that, that I felt I got from it. And, and, and actually, I wanted them to compete to understand competition, but not because I wanted them to be the best in the country or right. something, you know? Because I realised how brutal and ruthless sport can be mm. and also you know what a hard teacher it is and that might not suit the personality so you know it's more about the friendships and community and purpose and and feeling that actually you know there's when you're a young person when you're a child you've got that time to do it you know as, as you become you know older mm. and you're an adult you know it if, if sport isn't in your life from an early age, it's hard to get it in. And I do meet women who found sport later, you know, in their 30s, they've started to enjoy it. But they always talk to me about wanting, you know, kind of wishing that they'd had it younger because then it's part of you. You know, it's part of the tapestry of your life mm. and it, it's easy to dip in and out of it then. I'd like to speak about moving then to university. What were your current aspirations at the time? So while I was a gymnast, I was on Blue Peter, which was a big children's TV show live from Broadcasting House a few times a week. And I'd gone on there to advertise a gym competition when I was about 16. And it was the first time I'd been in a TV studio. And I just found it very exciting. I found mm. the whole BBC building exciting. And I was about to start my A-levels the following year. And I thought, oh, I'd really like to work in this environment. And I wrote to the editor of the show. And he wrote back and said, yes, go to university and come back and see me later kind of thing. Not particularly helpful step-by-step right. step advice. And I had thought I would go to university. Nobody in my family had ever been to university on either side. 
my mum had always talked to me about going to university. And so I did. I went to Durham and I read law. And in my mind, I was always looking for experiences within broadcasting. So, so if I met somebody who worked in newspapers or radio or anywhere, I mean, obviously we live in a very different landscape now, even sitting here right now doing mm. this, you know, we are broadcasting in a, in an environment that just didn't exist right. when I was growing up. So you had to go to formal newspapers or, you know, um, radio stations. And so when I got to Durham, I started working for the local radio station in Newcastle. I met a guy who was the boss and he gave me work experience. And for the first three months, I did kind of free shifts. I used to go in in the afternoons when I didn't have lectures and learn how to put a news bulletin together. I'd learn about reading the news. Then by the Christmas, he was paying me. And then by the end of my first year, he was letting me learn how to drive the desk and, you know, do shows. And by the time I graduated, I'd had regular shows and I got offered the breakfast show. So I kind of did an apprenticeship for those three years. And it was tough. You know, I was getting up at four o'clock on Saturday and Sunday mornings to drive to Newcastle to do the early shifts. I was doing late night radio shows at the weekends as well. So a lot of my student life was kind of punctuated with Monday to Friday. I was a student. Weekends, I was doing this job. And at the time, you know, kind of there's a bit of me kind of wondering about the sacrifice. But actually, I've got so much experience. You talked about 10,000 hours. You know, I kind of did that in my three years at university. So it was um, enormously kind of fortuitous. And you know, when you look back and you think, why did I end up at Durham? Why did I end up at, you know, because when I was at Sixth Form College, they'd asked me to go to Oxford and they said I should sit at the Oxbridge. And I didn't want to because my then boyfriend was moving to Newcastle. And I thought, no, I'm going to be close to Newcastle. And I went to see uh, a tennis match in Cambridge in my final year with my then boyfriend. And I was like, oh my God, this is beautiful. And then I look back and think, if I'd gone there, I would never have had that radio Mm -hmm. experience. I never would have spent three years doing the radio, understanding broadcasting. So things kind of worked out Mm. for for a reason, I think. And I had a great time as well. It sounds like your approach was very much, I need to create this. Like I need to find little Mm. bits of it and also almost like kind of create my own masterclass in how I'm going to get there. Where do you think you even got that kind of tenacity and determination and also just fearlessness as well yeah, just being I mean, able I to look kind back, of gosh I was quite you know um ballsy right. really to pick the phone up you know and I minute I arrived in Durham I called this guy and he was like you must have only just arrived like it's only freshers week you know because he'd like, given me the, yeah yeah <laughs> there's two kind of main things one what we just talked about the background that I'd had in sport and I think growing up in a family of four kids that was quite kind of robust and lots of sport and everybody being quite competitive. And and so that was probably the upbringing of my parents. But then also in the summer before I went, my brother had died. He was 15 and he died very suddenly. And um, I mean, literally on the spot, no warning signs. And that definitely made me somebody who wanted to seize the day and live life and get the most out of life possible. But coupled with that also... In the immediacy of his death, there was a feeling that I had to live his life as well. So I think I was charging at that point through life. You know, I was really kind of wanting to grab every opportunity, but not just grab them, I suppose, like you just alluded Mm. to, create them as well. Mm. So there was a kind of perfect storm. (laughs) Yeah, and I'd like to speak about that, if that's all right. Having received a phone call when you were at university. It was just before, actually. Oh, really? Right before. You were 19. Yeah, I was in my gap year. I can't imagine what that would have been like. So I wanted to take a year off before uni. I was supposed to be traveling. In the end, I I spent most of it in London doing lots of jobs that weren't related to broadcasting at all and just trying to kind of make ends meet. It was the May and it was May bank holiday. So I was only a few months off going up to Durham and the phone rang and it was a landline. You know, mobile phones didn't really exist. It was my mum. It was about seven o'clock in the evening 
and she was calling me to tell me that in the afternoon well late after after dinner my brother was playing football with my dad in the garden and he'd just fallen over into the grass he just collapsed and this was an hour and a half before this they'd rushed him to hospital thinking he had heat stroke or something it'd mm. been a hot day and he'd had a catastrophic heart attack basically a thing called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy which is where the heart as a muscle is enlarged and just stopped beating and um, and he was dead. There was, I mean, you can imagine as a family that had been very tight and close. And my little brother was six at the time. He was in the garden as well, playing football. My sister was a model and she was out in Japan, my younger sister. So she wasn't there, but um, it was just the most kind of horrific news, but also the biggest shock to our little family system, you know? And um, he was a footballer of some repute. You know, he'd signed for Leeds United, who'd just won the league that year. The, what is top league in England at the time it was uh, the old division one so he was very good enormously talented he was about to start his professional life two months later you know it was it was devastating and still to this day has the ripple effects because obviously families change forever when things like that happen and my parents eventually got divorced and you know so what had seemed like our future became a very different experience yeah I mean I can't believe how much in that moment everything must have just changed. It's one of those things that you you hear and no one thinks it, because it doesn't add up. Like, mm. it doesn't make sense. And Losing I can imagine that... Losing a child that, is not the normal order of events. No, yeah. and, and it being kind of that sudden and no preemption or mm. kind of no, no thinking that could happen. I can't imagine how much that would have rocked your whole family, but also your experience of the world. Mm. Obviously, 19 is a very crucial age mm. in becoming the person you are. It's your first kind of real... Well, your second year of being an adult mm, mm. as you say you were out of college you were kind of finding yourself in the world how did that experience at that age I guess impact your perception of the world and and who you are yeah and you don't ever really know what you would have been without right it of course you one looks back and think kind of okay I, I was obviously somebody who was hungry and determined and I'd you know put hard work in and but that accelerated kind of version of me, if you like, the kind mm. of, you know, um, I'm going for it now version, I think was definitely more acute because of that. And the, the reasons I just said before about feeling subconsciously, I think at first that I wanted to just get the life that, you know, live the life that he couldn't live and try and do, you know, as much as I could. But also coupled with that, you've got the grief and sadness that you carry and that has to manifest itself at some point. You can't just keep running away from grief, you know. So kind of a year into uni, I think it came out really when I'd done my first year exams and I was just feeling exhausted mm. and feeling kind of, you know, like I was not coping very well and had to start talking to people about that you know because I'm I'd kind of gone through the first year a little bit like oh people seem really worried about trivial things and I felt like I had some insight into right the and had this whole and, new vision of the yeah, yeah yeah and actually you know that's not a really good way to be as a 19 20 year old because I was be naive like you yeah. need to yeah. <laughs> yeah and also you need to have empathy for people who are mm. worried about what you see as something quite trivial you know mm. like they couldn't get the flat they wanted or the accommodation they wanted for their second year at uni well oh, that's not that important mm. you know but of course it is really important to them at the time um or they couldn't get into the rowing team or they couldn't get the play that they wanted yeah. to get that is really important yeah. but to me I was like well, you haven't lost your brother you know your family's all fine you know so in my mind I wasn't obviously vocalizing this but then I had to kind of you know work out that 
I couldn't go through life like that, you know. I couldn't only have friends who'd experienced devastating grief and tragedy. Right, of course. <laughs> and to find any kind of connection with mm. them. And so I think eventually when I started, you know, I'd eventually see somebody to kind of have acupuncture who became a therapist. And, and when I started to work through all of those feelings and how I was dealing with relationships with other people, because I think that's the important thing about a, a big event like that in your life. It's not just you know, kind of you having some kind of semblance of understanding. It's how you then going to deal with the wider world and other people is really important. And your siblings. And, mm. you know, because I think all those relationships change. So that happened really early for me, which is a good thing, you know, that I, that I did start speaking to people because I think I've met people along the way and I spoke to people on my podcast who maybe left it 20 years, you know, and a lot of damage can set in, I think, in, in your life, in the way you medicate yourself you know whether you decide to self-medicate or whether you decide to have destructive relationships and all those kinds of things that can come from different kinds of trauma that we know and we talk about a lot more now in society mm. which is great because I think people then have a better understanding that they can go and seek help and find a way to deal with it and live with it. How, how are your coping mechanisms now because I can imagine that grief is still very much there and some days more than others how have they changed since kind of what they were back then in the immediate aftermath? Yeah, it's it's very different now because obviously the rawness goes, you know, so, but I can still have moments and days where I start talking about him and I just find myself getting really emotional and, or um, there was a period in the build up to my son is now 18 when he was about to turn 16. I realized that I had been holding something, I think, inside me willing him to get to 16 because my brother never got to 16 and that was a big kind of moment for me that I you know I realized that that we hadn't had a boy in the family since he died get to that age you know because my I'm the eldest and my kids are the eldest of all the grandchildren mm. and so and my son has kind of followed a similar path he's a professional sportsman now and he's kind of you know was having those similar experiences so and he never knew his uncle, you know, so it wasn't his fault, you know. Yeah. And it's how you treat somebody you can kind of subliminally, either you're too protective or you're feeling a nervousness for them in their life. And interestingly, my son actually, through his rugby, had to have his heart tested around the same age. He came back from school and said, oh, all the first team rugby players have got to have these, you know. God, I can't imagine how that must have felt. Yeah, and he had to write, you know, on the form that his his uncle had died of this. And it, it is completely, it was an aberration in my brother's heart. It wasn't a genetic link, right. which it can be. Actually, but yeah. you still have that feeling. And then you start playing out scenarios in your head about, you know, he's got a twin sister and imagining how her life would change and you know and then seeing you know my my husband and I thinking gosh well how would our relationship change right and, and, you know how would we deal with it as a couple knowing that my parents didn't last you know that's catastrophizing mm. things and that's where you learn I think to go okay just you know just take a step back here this is not happening and we're going to deal with this he had the tests he's absolutely fine you know and that's that's that you know it does come into play but I think now as a source of fortitude as well, you know, you can get through situations and you can, you're can you going to be okay and it's going to be difficult, but you are going to get there. And inspiration as well, mm. I think, is is what he is still to me. And so you, you talk about how at that stage you kind of had almost a feeling that you needed to live his life for him. Mm. When you were then obviously going through university and then graduating... How did that, I guess, manifest in, in what you were doing in terms of your, you know, the work experience you were getting, mm. where you were going right after graduating? Well, interestingly, my journey into football, which 
didn't take that long after um, uni. I think there was probably something subliminal there about wanting to be in the environment he would have been in, you right. know. So I, I was always a football fan and I was um, in the office on the radio station doing a breakfast show, which had nothing to do with football per se. But I would always go into the sports end of the office at the, you know, and talk about Newcastle United and talk about football and talk about sport. And so one of the bosses said to me, oh, you really seem to enjoy sport. Why don't you do touchline interviews for us at St. James's Park? And I honestly thought that was kind of like just the best Saturday job ever. Like, yeah. Oh, I get to go to the football and you're going to pay for me. I get to cover car park parking space. Yeah. <laughs> that alone, getting yeah. past yeah. like yeah. the water. I'd like, I park right by the reception and I just go in. That became a really fun Saturday job, but I still didn't think it was a career move. It was mm. more like, this is fun. And my boyfriend at the time from uni was a Newcastle fan, lived in Newcastle. So it was like, he loved it, you know, so we were having a fun time. And then at the end of that season, Sky Sports asked me to go for a screen test. They'd see me doing the interviews pitch side, asked me to go for a screen test. And uh, and I got a job at Sky and I started working for Sky Sports. And I realized when I was researching for a match or something or for, you know, some work, I'd be always looking at the age of the players and going, I wonder if Daniel would have played now. I wonder if he would have been playing in this match. I wonder where he would have been playing. And, um, and these were people who would have been his contemporaries. You know, he would have grown up alongside these people and... So I, I think I probably was feeling quite comforted by that without it being a deliberate move. You know, I didn't say I'm going to work in football so I can, you know, this can happen. So, yeah, I think I was slightly drawn into that world, maybe more than I would have been. Right. And obviously having headed down to Sky in London, that's, you know, that feels pretty big. big like, move, yeah, <laughs> that was a big move. Did you feel at that time like that was your big break? Yeah, I did. I mean, the first few months of that job, I honestly felt like I'd won a lottery ticket, right. you know, because I'd moved to London. I'd always wanted to live in this, um, the Sky Studios are in Osterley. And in my gap year, I used to go to Richmond for the afternoon. I always wanted to live in Richmond and I signed up for Who a doesn't? flat in Richmond and <laughs> Richmond Hill. And I was like 23 years old. And I was kind of like, you know, I had, I was taken to the West End to Harvey Nichols to buy suits for work. And, you know, I felt like I was pretty woman in that scene, you know, mm. where Julia Roberts walks down Rodeo Drive. I had these shopping bags and I came home and I'm I remember hanging all my suits around my bedroom yeah. in my rented flat, kind of just lying on the bed, admiring them, <laughs> yeah. kind of going, oh, I mean, it sounds great. <laughs> yeah, this pinching myself, like this was my life, you know, I kind of couldn't believe it. And of course, the reality then of the work, you know, is, but it was what I wanted to do. And I was getting, again, going back to your 10,000 hours, I was doing two live shows a night on Sky, right? right. So I was doing six o'clock, 10 o'clock. I was getting so much experience, which... I'm so grateful for because if I made a little mistake at six, I could correct it at 10 and I was learning on the job. But they knew that. They knew they'd hired somebody quite raw. I'd come from radio and from doing some interviews, but not from live TV. So I was really lucky to be kind of in a, in a, in a space where I was growing, but also growing with people who there were a lot of young people who I, mm. who I now work with still in different channels that I work for, who came through that apprenticeship at the same time. And it was a very cutthroat environment because it was there was quite male environment and uh, there was a lot of testosterone there. But actually, for the most part, it was a really brilliant growth and learning space to be in. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. 
add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com This next section of the podcast is brought to you by Indeed, the UK's number one job site, which makes finding better work easier and way more effortless. One of the things Indeed champions and believes in is skills-based hiring, which is basically about hiring people based on their skills rather than academic credentials. Prior to running my businesses and kind of working on my personal brand, I've had jobs over the years that I've come to realise have actually enabled me to pick up skills that I wouldn't necessarily think are transferable at first, but definitely are and have absolutely contributed to how I currently work and communicate with my team's day today. When I was 17, for example, I worked as a social media coordinator for a language school, which was one of my first jobs within the social media industry. And it gave me real exposure to the day-to-day management of social media channels and how to utilize these channels to market a business, elements of which are very much still relevant in the work I do today. Over the last few years, I've also been fortunate enough to be invited to speak at various events and conferences and also launch my podcast, which has added to invaluable communication skills and public speaking skills, which can be attributed to all areas of work, no matter what industry you're in. During my time at university, when I launched my first business, Shreddy, I had to very quickly learn how to prioritise my workload and time management in order to be able to get my uni work completed and simultaneously work on my business. These two skills have been invaluable to me as I've continued on my career journey, so much so that I have developed a tried and tested method for productivity, which was not only a source of inspiration for my first book, but has enabled me to launch an entire business based on key elements of these skills. We'll be working with Indeed to bring you even more work-focused guidance and inspiration over the next few weeks, so make sure you keep an ear out for that. And in the meantime, think about the lifelong skills you might have and how you can be recognised for them by employers simply by uploading your CV for free on indeed.co.uk and let better work find you. And what would you say to someone who's in the industry now trying to get a big break? I think there are so many opportunities Mm. in sports broadcasting now, if that's the kind of part of the world you want to work in, which is a good place to be right now because sports still rates really highly. Sports rights are very expensive. Getting bigger, the women. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Get as much experience as you can. Like I mentioned before, I was writing off to places. I was getting experience. I get a lot of people contact me on social media and I always try and reply to them in some way. And sometimes I get back messages years later and they're working at the BBC. I bumped into a girl in the toilets at the BBC Sport recently. She came out of the cubicle at the same time as me. She's about 24. And she looked like she'd seen a ghost. I thought, oh my God, have I kind of a toilet roll on my head or something? And she went, oh my gosh, I wrote to you and you wrote back to me when I was 16. And I went to university and now I've got an apprenticeship. And, you know, oh, so incredible. Was, yeah, it was amazing. And I think, you know, if you really want to do it, there are there are really good routes into the industry it's hard work though you know and you've got to want to do it it's not about you know kind of like having nice makeup and hair and going on telly and kind of like feeling you know that this is a fun it's it's hard work um but it is very rewarding and you will you know you'll get a lot out of it but it is I think now a much more open space for women you know there are many more opportunities might not be in front of the camera you might want to be director you might want to be a producer but sport is vibrant and fun and all the things all the reasons we love sport as a you know as an entity you know reflect in sports broadcasting I think. And with the existence of social media now obviously as you say like this type of setup wouldn't even exist do you think your route into the industry would have been different or kind of looking at routes into the industry now looking at the fact that you can kind of platform yourself do you think you would have taken a different approach? Yeah I'm sure I'm sure I would because I think also a lot of places are quite guarded now about work experience 
you know, in the BBC, you've got to be a certain age or you've got to have that, you know. So I probably wouldn't have just been able to kind of rock up to somewhere. and Give them a call. (laughs) Yeah. But I think now you can broadcast yourself. Right. So you can create your own, you know, kind of YouTube channel. You can create your own Instagram account that has lives. And, you know, if you are knowledgeable and you can write well and you can deliver that orally as well, then you've got a chance. And when you're at university or college, do loads of commentaries, you know, don't be afraid to when you're a student to work for free on those kinds of things because that you're building up a portfolio, you're building up a body of work, and you're building up experience without having to kind of put yourself in the you know in the firing line. So there there are different ways in now. It's a different industry now. Right, and you were the first woman to host a live football match on terrestrial television. Yeah. What was the culture like back then? Like the broadcasting culture as a whole. What was the response to you even? I yeah, there was, being... there was a, uh, you know, there were definitely those that didn't particularly want to see a woman talking right. about football. I mean, there are those now who don't yeah, particularly want it's that. definitely still exists. Yeah. <laughs> so, but they were much more likely to write a column about it in a national newspaper then. <laughs> they, right. They probably wouldn't do that now. And so I had to, you know, kind of have a thick skin and let a little bit of criticism kind of bounce off. We talked mm. about criticism earlier. It's important to take on board. But equally, when you get into a position where there are opinions being fired at you from all over the place you then have to work out the people you really care about. Right. Do I care about your opinion? Do I care about your opinion? Who is, who's the person who I'm going to listen to? So I'd, I quickly kind of whittled them down into three or four people, you know, that might be my boss, it might be a mentor, it might be a parent, you know, somebody who I was going to actually take some positive and negative feedback from and not just take everything. Because, of mm. course, you're never as good as people say you are and you're never as bad as people say you are. Right? If you remember those two things, you could be quite measured, I think, you know, because so, it's an industry where people will to use the expression, blow smoke up your ass sometimes, Mm. you know, and that equally is wrong. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. And I do think that's very true in a way that in a world where we've never received so much feedback, especially obviously kind of, I mean, on TV, that's going to be amplified. It's instant, isn't it? Somebody's watching TV, they're holding a phone in their hand, almost always. Oh, I'm going to tell her she doesn't look good today. Right, exactly. I'm going to tell her she just slipped up. Back in the start of my career, they'd have to write a letter. Could they be asked to write a letter? Very rarely, you know, and generally the ones that came through were nice letters, you know, wanting a photograph, wanting mm. a signed autograph. So it, the letters that came that were negative were few and far between. Whereas I'm sure if people had social media when I first started, I would have been bombarded every night with, mm. you know, their opinions. I think there's a Brene Brown um quote that I have somewhere that's talking about how very happy to take feedback as long as you're also in the ring getting kind of battered like yeah, also yeah. you know someone who's giving it a go trying like whether it's kind of entrepreneurship whether it's pre- presenting whatever it might be there's a very clear as you said like with a with a coach you can take that criticism and that intense amount mm. of criticism and feedback because it's that trust relationship there mm. and because the expectation is they are there to help you be better yeah. that's obviously you cannot vet people in no. that way where you're I, reading through Twitter. I sought out my own person, you know. So I had a guy who was a coach who Sky had employed and I loved having feedback sessions with him. And when mm. I left Sky, we carried on that relationship. You know, he came to my wedding, became a really good friend. Sadly, he died a few years ago and I really miss his... So I was trying to find somebody, you know, even at my age and my experience, I wanted somebody I could sit down with, watch a, a match or whatever and have some feedback because there are a lot of people who want my job <laughs> and I want to keep doing my job. I don't want to, you know, be slack about how I'm doing or what I'm doing. And, and he was somebody I really trusted. So if he said something to me that was a little bit negative, I believed it, you know. And I think, you you know, you have to kind of be honest with yourself as well, don't you? And that that is a conversation you can have internally, you know, am I, am I kidding myself or can I be, you know, can I do this better? That That's really important, I think. And, you know, there's that expression there about, you know, 
getting to the top is one thing, staying at the top is a different journey and it's a whole different experience. How would you recommend someone finds, I guess, their version of your mentor? I suppose if, if you're in a workspace environment, mm. and so you're already in that, the beginning of that job or career, it's looking out for the people that you think, I like the way that they treat people, I like the way that they work, I like the way that they, you know, have their life is kind of going, you know, mm. their values. And, and if they are what you think they are, they'll probably be quite receptive to giving you advice mm. and and helps I don't be afraid to ask that person you know for for a little bit of advice and mentorship and um I think it's better to have them or somebody you know I mean don't you know don't be writing off Taylor Swift you know because she's not probably not gonna be able to do the job right sure <laughs> but if you know it's in a closer proximity it might be somebody who you actually are distantly related to who you think not at the same job but actually look how they've navigated their life you know they've had setbacks and they've had disappointments and they, they they're doing well and I'd like to know kind of how they've found themselves in that position um, and ask questions I love it when I meet you know I do a lot, a lot of different shows that aren't just sport and young runners on the show who are starting out in their career and I love it when they ask me questions and it doesn't happen often enough you know I did um you know countdown on channel four um the dictionary corner you do five shows in a day and I did that recently and the guy who was the young runner there just ask questions all the time. Like even when he brought me my lunch, he was asking me questions. And and I ended up giving him some contacts for other shows that I thought he'd be good to work on. He really wanted to get into sport and I, I recommended him to BBC Sport because we need people like that, you know? So if you spot them, you want to help them. Right. You don't ask, you don't get. And also you very much get in what you put out. As you said, like that person was just there doing what they wanted to do and yeah. getting it, you know, being yeah. like, I want to ask this question. Yeah. I want to get and this answer. help more. You know, when you're in those situations at the very start, think about what could I, don't wait to be told, right? What else could I be doing that's helping people in this environment? Because nobody's given me a task for the last hour or so, but actually there is things that you know, there are things that people want. Try and be proactive with it. You know, you might not get it right, but nobody will ever criticize you for trying to help. You know, I, and if they do, they're an evil person and they shouldn't be allowed <laughs> in their environment. Yeah. yeah. Nobody will ever say, stop being so helpful. Right. <laughs> so I think just, just imagine, you know, the scenario for that person. What do they need now? Well, they haven't had a coffee for a few hours. I wonder if they're thirsty. I wonder if I can help them, you know, carry their stuff. I wonder if I can get them to, you know, just, just all those things will put you in their mindset. Right. No, I completely agree with that. I, I remember doing, I did an internship at IBM and I remember I was in an area that I wasn't, I wasn't truly interested in. I liked the day to day, but I wasn't kind of, you know, it wasn't my favorite area. And I remember hearing like the head of e-commerce, which is an area that I'm very much in now. I remember hearing him speak at one of the grad days and I kind of went up afterwards and I was like, is there anything like <laughs> anything you need done like just yeah. whatever it is and he ended up running like a kind of e-commerce pitch competition and that was hugely formative in my experience in mm. in the workplace and actually it was just about being a kind of ballsy intern mm. and just going up and asking too many questions I think I think it's like you, you know you doing that shows enormous kind of tenaciousness and confidence but you probably had to fake a bit of that confidence right. you know at the 100%. time none of us ever feel like you know you've got to kind of just go right okay how bad could this be what are they going to say and do it. Just get on with it and do it. And don't worry about embarrassment. I think to work in this industry, it helps not to be easily embarrassed because there are situations where, you know, it's not going to always go to plan. Those conversations, he could have turned around and said, sorry, what? <laughs> you know, um, no thanks. But, you know, you did it. And I think it, you will get the next time you'll feel a bit better about right. doing that. And you build up that that confidence in yourself. And you're now obviously a staple on our screens for the World Cup, the Euros. What's been your most memorable sporting moment? 
Oh, I've been so lucky to be in stadiums where England won a Rugby World Cup in 2003, where the Olympics in 2012, I worked on that, was incredible. The Women's World Cup this year, the final, which didn't go to plan, but was still, you know, getting to the final was amazing. The Women's Euro is probably one of the great days, I think, at work. It's very hard to pick kind of one moment, but I just feel like the stories of sport are kind of, you know, I look back and think, God, I can't believe I've done this for nearly 30 years. You think I'd have kind of got bored of it or something by now. But actually, sport just, the way it evolves, the way new characters come in, people, you know, I was working last night with Gareth Southgate, the England manager, doing a Q&A with him. And we got talking about Jude Bellingham, who's such an exciting prospect for England's men's team, obviously plays at Real Madrid now. And I was like, you know, just thinking, God, what, what could he achieve in his life and career? And what what are his values? What are his, I love sports people's kind of stories because, you know, from what I understand, he's pretty perfect. You know, he kind of trains really hard. He does. I was going to Gareth. Surely he has a fault. Give us an floor. edge. Yeah. And he said, we haven't found it yet. You know, said, is he rubbish at crosswords? And, uh, <laughs> and I, I think, you know, sport continues to kind of fuel me, I think, and give me mm. great inspiration. And, you know, it's it's hard to pick just one thing, but I, I just love how hard people work in sport and you know what they give it really inspires me and having two grown-up children what not quite grown up yet. don't quite. let them hear okay, that sorry. you know they're still my babies okay <laughs> having two baby children <laughs> yeah i think my six foot five son would probably object to that description. <laughs> what advice are you kind of actively giving them about pursuing their careers going forwards taking over whatever they want to take over i think they've seen a lot from their parents just behaviors that they you know, I sometimes see my daughter, my daughter's really hardworking. She's having a gap year, but she's, she's horses and uh, that's her thing. And she competes and she gets up at six o'clock every day. She does that till lunchtime. Then she goes and nannies in the afternoon. And then she's, you know, she's knackered at the moment because she's doing that six days, seven days a week, you know, with the horses. But I kind of let her get on with it because she's really, you know, she's, she's seen how, you know, we work. And um, the other thing that's pleasing about that is that she's seen how important sport is to us and she goes off and does her exercise and enjoys eating well and all those things that I haven't had to kind of go, you must eat well. Well, obviously I did buy healthy food in the house, but she sees what that does to her. So that's really pleasing that she's adopting those habits herself. So I try not to kind of give, you know, too much um, kind of, if I see things that I think, oh, I wouldn't do that, but you try and let her make those mistakes and do things herself. With my son, he's in that environment. He's in a professional sporting environment. He's playing uh, professional rugby so his relationship now with his dad has changed beautifully because from my husband telling him things for the last 10 years that would help him and him saying no I know how to do it my way now he's in that environment he rings him up they have a chat about things that he's thinking about about rugby and you know that environment so it's really lovely that they he's able to share those experiences with him and I'm really proud of you know both of them and how they how they work and how they enjoy what they're doing and pursuing their passions because I think when you have kids the one thing you hope is that they will have passion for life and do something that they really enjoy. And it doesn't matter whether they are A-star students or whether they get into the top universities. I think it's about for the... Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com For me, it was about them having passions and about them being, you know, good people who were nice to be around. And so far, <laughs> so far, that seems to be uh, going well. So, I'm, um, you know, I'm 
always there for advice. And sometimes my daughter does say worrying things like, I think I'd like to do what you do when I try and say no. (laughs) (laughs) No, do your own thing. But, you know, she might want to work in broadcasting. And if she does one day, then, you know, I would give her advice. But I think I'd always try and kind of get her to forge her own path. And if you were talking to the you who was just starting out, the you who kind of rung up that station in Newcastle, what advice would you give her? I sometimes look back and think, oh gosh, I... I was rushing so much, you know, did I kind of stop and, you know, really kind of cement those experiences. But I was doing so much at the time and had a lot of energy and, you know, was doing all the shifts that came to me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell her to not do those things. Things like hobbies, you know, I was, I started to learn the guitar when I was in Newcastle and then I stopped because I was too busy with my shifts. I think, look back and go, oh my God, I could have been playing the guitar for 25 (laughs) years now. You know, I could have been playing the piano. I wish I'd kind of like kept learning alongside my career aspirations. I wish I'd done something else alongside that was, so I might say to her, you know, pick the guitar back up or pick, you know, get back on the piano or do something for you that's kind of, you know, for your headspace. It's so interesting because I think that's so valid, but I also think that everyone who I've spoken to that has a really impressive career, they all say, you know, I wish I'd not tried to grow up too fast and I wish I'd just, you know, as you say, do something for you that's not necessarily for furthering your career and all of that. I agree, but I also kind of think there's definitely something in that, that it's also been a real priority from an early age. But it's like sports people. When you speak to really successful sports people, they always say, I wish I'd enjoyed it more at the time. I'm like, well, you wouldn't have won six Champions Leagues and 10 Premier Leagues if you'd enjoyed it at the time. But they always say that when they get to the end. And I always go, like, the end is only, like, in your 30s still, Mm. (laughs) you know, when you're a sports person. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you're probably right. And, And even now, sitting here at 50... I could probably still learn the guitar if I really wanted to. (laughs) Yeah, definitely could. So I'm not, you know, I'm probably just, I think the word is procrastinating on that one. You're now doing a lot more work researching midlife as a crucial point um, in our lives, as a kind of inflection point as a whole with the Midlife podcast. Could you tell me a little bit about that and whether you feel if your career has kind of just started? Yeah, it's interesting because your viewers and listeners are at a certain junction in life and there is another junction I think a little bit later which is now becoming quite a pivotal period for people because we work longer than ever we don't have one career you know our grandparents and parents uh, would have had one job through their life you know retired at 65 and my generation is thinking about pivoting moving on changing retraining because they're going to work for another 20 25 years our longevity you know is increasing how we live the rest of our life you know and those habits actually um, and I've done nearly 100 episodes of the midpoint and we've had amazing guests you know from comedians to sports people to actors and actresses and experts who come on what is clear is that you know your health and well-being those are habits that will stand you in good stead for the rest of your life but in terms of career and changes in relationship you know all those things that I think you know can happen in a midlife they used to call it the midlife crisis I think it's really good to be able to kind of navigate that period in a way that you would say puberty you know because we we talk a lot about kind of teenagers and their changes but so much happens in midlife health-wise so I mean I started it I won't lie to you Grace as a completely selfish project because I was heading into that period but I've just really loved it and it's it's fascinating so um, yeah it's uh, it's a good space to be in. You know especially with women where we're kind of looking at the fact that we obviously hopefully have a lot longer kind of working careers if we want to mm actually so much of what we've been taught is kind of get this in before you have kids get this in yeah. after you have kids and all of that and actually looking at it on an entirely different plane I mean my mum 
was probably a few years away from retirement and decided to take a whole separate job out moving from public to private sector and is having the time of her life. And she kind of was on the verge of that being the end of her career. And I think that that's hugely important to be talked about too. purpose you know I think society used to look at the kind of middle-aged beige type thing you know and people were kind of what, what 50 looked like 30 40 years ago is very different to what it looks like now right and I think we also intergenerationally you know because of digital and because of the kind of online world you know we have to kind of understand what's going on as well that's midlife is you can't just ignore technology and ignore what's happening so and that's going to keep you youthful in your outlook as well so um yeah it's um it is fascinating and I think age kind of is just boundaries are disappearing slightly. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This has been incredibly inspiring personally, and I have no doubt that it will have helped a lot of people, specifically in broadcasting, but also, um, yeah, you have so much valuable advice. Um, so thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for teasing it out of me. <laughs> Lovely to chat. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Working Hard, Hardly Working and getting all the way to the end. Congratulations, that's your big achievement for the day. I'm so grateful for the community around this podcast and having Gabby on today was such a special moment for me, honestly. I would appreciate it so much if you could like, rate, subscribe and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it. And as always, have an amazing week. Have an amazing week.